0: This is the word of the Lord. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we are gathered here to stand before your holy word, and uh, it is our deep desire that you would speak to us, and we are so grateful that, that your word is like no other words spoken in the earth that are are so true, so faithful, so unchanging. Your word is light. Your word is life to us. And so, Lord, we open our hearts and minds to you. Would you strengthen us? Would you encourage us? And would you lead us to our Savior, Jesus, as we study your word now? And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we've been studying through the book of Revelation for the last three uh, summers, and my impression is that most people think that Revelation, the book of Revelation, is about the future. And um, uh, if you've been with us uh, through this study, uh, we've been learning how actually most of Revelation is not about the future, but it's about events that happened in the early church. And so finally today, here at the end of the book, we're finally ready to start talking about the future. And this uh, passage I just read from Revelation 20 is a very famous passage. It talks about the millennium, which is a thousand-year period where Satan will be bound and Christ will reign uh, with his saints. And uh, the main uh, debate around this passage about the millennium is really the question... When is the millennium going to happen? Does the millennium, these, this thousand-year period that this pastor talked about, does it happen before Christ comes again, or does it happen after Christ uh, comes again? And these two views are called premillennialism. Premillennialism, pre means before, so believes that Christ will come, and then there will be a thousand-year period. Post-millennialism is the other view that Christ will come at the end of the thousand-year period. That's the view that I'm going to be uh, presenting for us today. And so you might wonder, why is there confusion about this? Why are there two different views? Well, if you were with us uh, last week, we looked at a, um, a passage that describes Jesus riding on a white horse, and he's got his army following after him, and the sword coming out of his mouth, which is his word. And uh, some people think that the passage we looked at last week is referring to the second coming. So it would make sense that last week, second coming, this week, the millennium. So the millennium comes after the second coming. But we talked about last week how that's actually not talking about the second coming. It's talking about Christ's mission in uh, the world. And so we're going to see next week, if you come back next week, we'll talk about the final judgment, which is after this passage. So you have the millennium and then Christ comes again to judge the living and the dead. So the view, um, our view as a church is that we are currently in the millennium, the thousand year period that's described in this passage. The millennium is the age of the church from the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. is an important event that we've been talking about in Revelation that happens in Revelation, and to the final judgment when Christ comes again. It's not literally a 1,000 years. I'll talk about that as we get into the sermon. But this matches up with history. This is exactly what's happened in history. As Jerusalem fell in 70 A.D. at the end of the first generation of Christians. Then there's been a long period of time now, 1,000 years, a very long period of time, and then the final judgment will happen at the end. So it matches with what's actually happened in history. And you, you might wonder, does this really matter? You know, Christians are always arguing about the millennium. Is it post millennial? Is it pre millennial? And, and, and you think, you know, why don't we just love God and love people? And do these little fine points of doctrine really make any difference? Well, I would say actually, this one has huge implications for how Christians live and for how we engage with the world around us. I think it has huge implications for the mission of the church. Actually, you know, I was a pastor, I was a church planter, planted Christ Church Bellingham in 2009. One of the main reasons that I planted this church was because of post-millennialism. And so uh, this has had a huge impact on my life. And so I'm excited to talk to you all about it. So today I want to explain... Three things about post-millennialism. This is what they are. That in the millennium, Satan is bound. In the millennium, the saints will reign. And in the millennium, the church will suffer. Three points that I want to point out from this passage. In the millennium, Satan is bound, the saints will reign, and the church will suffer. Three important points. And by the way, I'll just say at the beginning, some of you might say, you know, I just said there are two views on the millennium, pre-millennial and postmillennial. Some of you say there's a third view, the amillennial view, which is what actually the majority of the people in our denomination, the Presbyterian church, are amillennialists. And amillennialism, post-millennialism actually have quite a lot of overlap. They, they both think we're living in the millennium right now and Christ will come at the end. So I'm not going to get into the, the, the details about the difference between those. I think post-millennialism's the right one, so that's the one you're gonna hear about today, okay? Anyway, so three points on post millennialism, and the first is this that in the millennium, Satan is bound. In the millennium, Satan is bound, and you see that there in verse one where it says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain, and he sees the dragon. That ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan and bound him for a thousand years. So currently, this passage is saying is that Satan is bound. And some of you might say, well, how can that be? It seems like Satan's still doing evil in the world and, and, you know, there's darkness in the world and satanic things in the world. How can we say that he's bound? Well, it must mean that he has not stopped all of his activity, but he's been restricted in some way. And actually, the way that this, this uh, Revelation 20 talks is uh, Jesus talked in a very similar way in his ministry. So as uh, some of you know, in the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, Jesus was going around casting out demons out of people, and people accused him and say, well, the only reason you can cast out demons is because you're in league with Satan. You're like on Satan's team. And so Jesus responds in Mark 2:26. He says, and if Satan is risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. So Jesus understands his mission to say, I'm coming to bind the strong man who is Satan so that I can plunder his house. And the Bible says that Satan is the prince of this world. And so Jesus has bound Satan. And now during this thousand-year period, Jesus is plundering Satan's house. That's what's happening. And so Revelation is just confirming what Jesus said was going to happen. But then if Satan is only restricted in some way right now, What is it? And this passage tells us specifically the way that Satan is restricted. And you see it there in verse 3 where it says, And threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. And so this is the specific way Satan has been bound is he can no longer deceive the nation. So he can't keep like whole nations locked up in lies and evil and deception and darkness. And so this should be a huge encouragement to us that in the age of the millennium, the gospel is going to go forward and people are going to believe it. People in every nation are going to hear the gospel and they're going to to believe it. And some of you might say, well, you know, it doesn't really feel like that's kind of happening right now, that Satan is bound. You know, our culture, Christianity is in decline. Fewer and fewer people are going to church, and the culture seems more adversarial towards Christianity. But when we say that, that's a very American focus, and just this little sliver of time that we're focused on. I mean, if you look at what's happening globally, that's not what's happening at all. I mean, in Africa, Christianity has exploded in the last in the last century. Uh, Africa went from being 9% to 60% Christian in the last century. Actually, our, our old pastor, uh, Daniel Robbins, is, is a seminary professor in Malawi. Malawi is 80% Christian. You know, we're a Presbyterian church. There are way more Presbyterians in Malawi. It's, like, it's something like 10 times the number that we have in our denomination they have in Malawi. It's, uh, the, the gospel is growing. It's not just in Africa. It's in China. It's in South America. And why is that? It's because Satan is bound. And you might think that Christianity is in retreat right now in this historical moment. That's absolutely not true. The 20th century saw by far the most massive missionary growth of the gospel than any century in in Christian history. Uh, And so this is the first example of a practical implication of post-millennialism is that if we believe that we are in the millennium and Satan is bound from deceiving the nations, we're going to go out and send missionaries and plant churches to tell the nations about the gospel. And that's why I was saying, that's why this church was planted. It's because Satan is bound and Christ is going forth. Post-millennialism is an optimism that should lead us to mission. And I'll tell you, that's actually historically been the case. Uh, Over the last... Hundred years in America, um, most American Protestants have not been post millennial. Premillennialism has been far more dominant. But actually, if you go back a few hundred years, that was not the case. Um, and, you know, premillennialism has a much more pessimistic view of, of history. And if you have a sense of history that, well, where history's going is the world is going to get worse and worse. It's like the Titanic that's just sinking. And we're trying to, like, save people onto a lifeboat. But the world is, is just, you know, going to be destroyed and become worse and worse. That's more of a, a premillennial view. But... Um, but when we say no, the tribulation of Revelation that we read about actually happened in the first century, and now we are living in the millennium. We're gonna be we're gonna have reason to be optimistic, and missionaries are gonna start going to the four corners of the earth. And actually, in the in the 18th century, the beginning of the modern missionary movement happened. William Carey was kind of led the way in that, and uh, many. Uh, Christians who had been trained by the kind of Puritan understanding of a post-millennial hope, they started going to the nations, all different nations, to bring the gospel because they believed Satan is not bound. And some of the, uh, the greatest minds, two of the, the greatest Christian minds of the 18th and 19th century uh, were Jonathan Edwards and, and Charles Spurgeon. And you can find passages from both of them who believed that the future of human history was that the whole world was going to come to know the love of Christ that the love of Christ would become dominant, or as, uh, as uh, uh, Isaiah says, that, that the knowledge of the glory of the Lord would fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. And the reason they believed that was because that's what the Puritans believed before them, and they saw it in Old Testament passages, like here's uh, Psalm 22, verse 27, and there are many Old Testament passages like this. I'll just read one. It says, All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you, for kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. An incredible vision that all the families of the earth are going to remember that they were made by their Creator and turn to him and worship him. Now, this is an important word for us in our culture right now. Because, I, you know, I've talked to many pe- people in our church who say I'm very discouraged about our culture, and it just seems like Satan is having his way with our culture, and our culture's on a downward spiral. And so how would a post-millennial view view what's happening in our culture right now? Well, uh, you know, one example of this, there was a, a documentary, I watched this last year, called Eve in Exile. It's kind of a critique on the history of uh, feminism and its effects on, on culture. And there's this one point where the, the woman who's kind of the narrator of the documentary, she was describing our culture as like a house that's being renovated. And basically where we are right now is all the, um, all the drywall has been ripped off. Everything's been demoed. And so now we're down to just the studs. And it feels like this house is being destroyed But actually, you could view it that way or you could view it as like, this is a blank canvas. This is time for the remodel to happen. And the Christians have to say, we are excited about being a part of the remodel of a culture. And we're going to shape the remodel that's going to happen. We're going to shape the future. It's an opportunity for Christians to build culture and to be culture makers. That is what the vision of a passage like this is giving us. So postmillennialism is a a vision of the future with hope. And on the one hand, this passage says that uh, during the age of the church, Satan is going to be bound. So we should have a strong missionary effort because we believe that the gospel is going to go forth. But there's another side to that truth, which is the second point. So not only that in the millennium, uh, Satan will be bound, but in the millennium, the saints will reign in the millennium the saints will reign with christ and you see uh this passage goes on there in verse four how it says then i saw thrones and seated on them were those uh, were those to whom the authority to judge was committed Now, these thrones in verse 4, they've only been mentioned one other time in Revelation. It was way back in Revelation chapter 4. And if you go go listen to that sermon from back then, we talked about how at that time in Revelation 4, seated on those thrones were angels. And those angels took their crowns in Revelation 4 and took off their crowns and cast their crowns down. But basically what they were doing was they were resigning their authority on those thrones. And so now that Christ has come and he's taken on human form, and he is on the throne, these thrones are being replaced now by humans. And so before the coming of Christ was the age of angels, and now the millennium is the age of humanity, um, where humans are now reigning with Christ. And this passage tells us two things about the people who are on the thrones and who God has given authority over heaven and earth with Jesus, okay? The first thing that we learn about the people on the thrones is that they are the martyrs of Christ. Who is on the throne now with Jesus is first the martyrs of Christ. And you see who's taken the place of the angels on the thrones is in the second part of verse 4 there. It says, Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So in the age of the millennium, martyrs have the supreme political power. And this is proven true over the last 2,000 years, countless times, the political power that martyrs have. So you take, for example, in the Roman Empire, in the centuries after Revelation was written, you know, Christians were very decent, law-abiding, citizens. They refused to worship the emperor, but they loved their neighbors. They cared for people. They just minded their own business. They did their work. And what did the Roman Empire do? At times, they would persecute them and, and put them to death. And these, uh, these deaths would be public. And, um, and people would see these neighbors. They're like, you know, these Christians are decent people, and they're just killing them. You know, they're sending them to the lions. And these Christians are, 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 are taking it. And um, what this would do, it would reveal to the people that the laws of Rome were unjust, that they were totally arbitrary, that the leaders in Rome would just make laws and make things that were expedient for them as leaders. And so all the people in the Roman Empire would get disenchanted with the Roman Empire and say, this is, this is a joke, this is a lie. And then they would come into the church. And so the martyrs were actually undermining all the power of the political leaders and, uh, and so through martyrdom, the church gained more and more cultural influence. And as the, the church father Tertullian said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The blood of the martyrs causes the church to grow. And I mentioned, you know, that in the, uh, in the 20th century has been by far the most, seen the most missionary growth in the history of the church the 20th century also saw by far the most martyrs in the history of church. I've heard the statistic that, that there were more martyrs just in the 20th century than the previous 19th centuries combined. So with the blood of the martyrs comes the growth and cultural influence of the church. So the first thing we see about who's on these thrones, first, it's the martyrs of Christ. But the second thing we see about who's on these thrones, who's reigning with Christ right now during the millennium, is Those who have been made alive alive in Jesus. And you see it there in verse 5. How It says, And the rest of the dead did not come to life until the, the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Now, a couple of questions about that verse. Some of you say, what's the first resurrection? What is, what is that talking about? Well, there's a first resurrection, there's a second resurrection. Whenever you have a confusing verse in the Bible where you're like, I don't really know what that's talking about, the first thing you have to ask, is there anywhere else in the Bible that mentions a first and a second resurrection that could help us understand it, that's maybe clearer? And in this case, there is. In 1 Corinthians 15, 22, this is what it says for as in adam all die so also in christ shall all be made alive it's a very similar language but each in his own order christ the first fruits and then at his coming those who belong to christ so christ is the first so what's the first resurrection it was jesus was raised first and then all his people will be raised at the at the uh, at The second coming. And so if the first resurrection is Jesus' resurrection, what does it mean to have a share in the first resurrection? Well, that's anyone who believes in Jesus. When you believe in Jesus, his resurrection life comes into you and it changes you. And so that's us. And so what this verse is saying is that we are reigning with Christ for a thousand years. We are priests to God, priest kings to God. And if you don't believe that's true about us right now, let me read another verse to you. This is what Ephesians 2, 5 says. But God made us alive together with Christ. It's, again, very similar language. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So again, we've been made alive with him, and we are seated with him. Seated with him is on the throne. And so I want us to really appreciate the significance of what this is saying. We are priest kings who are now reigning with Christ. Christ has been given all authority over heaven and earth, and we are his bride. And you know what the bride does? The bride is a partner in the mission. We are Christ's partner in the mission. We are reigning with him, and he has a mission in the earth. And so how would that change how we we would think about what we are doing as Christians in the world right now? Well, I think it would tell us that we are leading the culture. We are the culture leaders. And we often look at the culture and we say, who's leading the culture? Oh, it's the politicians, or it's the media, or it's the universities, or the celebrities that are leading our culture. This passage is saying that's not who's leading the culture. And I wish I could show you a hundred ways that Christians have been leading the culture for the last 2,000 years. Even when they're a minority. Even when they're marginalized, and the whole culture is making fun of them and thinks that they're fools. Even when the whole culture is persecuting them. It turns out over history, they're the ones starting the hospitals, they're the ones starting the universities, they're the ones caring for the poor, they're the ones teaching people. They are the ones that are shaping and laying the foundation for the culture. And if we uh, think that basically the world is a Titanic, and all we're trying to do is save people from the Titanic and get them on a lifeboat so that they'll have eternal life, if that's all that we, uh, what we are doing, we are not going to exercise the cultural leadership that Jesus expects us to. But if Christian think, Christians think that they are partnering with Jesus in the building of the city of God in the earth during the millennium, it's going to radically change how we do our Christian work and how we engage with the world around us. And you even think the reference to a thousand years. You know, that's a very symbolic number. Thou- a thousand is ten cubed have a little math in 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 the sermon today, and uh, and ten is a, is seven plus three. Seven is the number of creation. Creation was made in seven days. Three is the number of God. God is triune, and so ten is when the creation and God come together. God fills the creation with his presence. And it's not just he fills it, but then it's cubed. It's like God is becoming all in all. He is filling the earth with the knowledge of his glory. That is what he is doing in the millennium. Or as Abraham Kuyper has famously put it, Kuyper said, there is not one square inch over the whole creation over which Jesus Christ does not say, it is mine. We should be thinking about our families, our families, a thousand generations we should be thinking about christ church and our community being here in 200 years we should uh, and our, our great grandchildren being leaders elders and deacons and leading women in the church we should think about institutions and businesses that we have developed that will be here for the long term we should be culture builders building a culture that honors christ and his word and blesses this region of the world it's not just for us it's for the life of the world It's for the good of the world. Now, if you think that the world is going to be destroyed any day, and that's what God's plans are, why build a beautiful culture? But if you believe we are reigning with Christ for some very long period of time, it could be thousands of years more. And in fact, my sense is Jesus still has quite a lot of work to do in in the earth, and it seems like we've got some thousands of years to go, you're going to build things that are going to have a lasting cultural impact, and I'll give you a very pr- practical example of this. Uh, you know, a few years ago, I was visiting a seminary and uh, that had a different millennial view. It was pre-millennial. If you're pre-millennial, I'm not dissing on pre-millennials. I love pre-millennial brothers and sisters, but I, I was at the seminary. And I had a buddy who went to the seminary. He was giving me a tour, and he was said, "You know, this dorm here." is basically falling apart. It was built in the 60s. And when they built it, they they decided to use really cheap materials because they thought, well, this world is the Titanic and it's sinking and Christ is going to come back any day. Let's spend all of our money on just trying to get people on the lifeboats, sharing the gospel so that they'll be saved. And now Jesus didn't come back and now they've got a dilapidated dorm (laughs) building They weren't thinking, I'm building a seminary that's going to be here for 200 years or 500 years or is going to build lasting change. Now, you multiply that into all the things that Christians are building in our culture and around the world, that mentality, then the things we're building aren't going to be very good. What this passage is saying is of deep practical importance. So in the millennium, Satan is bound. The nations cannot, as whole cultures, be deceived and the, and the saints are now reigning. We are reigning with Christ, those who've come alive, and particularly the, more, uh, the martyrs. And that is particularly a call for us to be building the city of God with Christ in the earth. But I will say that when Christians have an optimism about God's kingdom, it's very easy for that to turn into a kind of pride or hubris you know like we're the leaders of the culture and we have the truth and there's a kind of triumphalism that can kind of go with that that can also blind us to our own sins and so i think it's interesting that the lord has not directed history that christians just get to march forward and we're just conquering all the time that's not the experience of christians never been it's not now and that's not what we see in the bible or in this passage and so this leads to our third point that in the millennium, the church will suffer. In the millennium, the church will suffer. Um, And now, I say that in the millennium, the church will suffer, but it's actually in this passage, it's after the millennium, the church will suffer. And you see that there in verse 7, how it says, and when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out uh, to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their, Their number... It's like the sand of the sea, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, but fire get, came down from heaven and consumed them, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And so what this is saying is that at the end of the millennium, before Christ comes, there will be a last persecution of the church. And the names there, Gog and Magog, that comes from uh, Ezekiel uh, uh, 38 and and 39. And it does appear that Satan is going to join the nations together against the church. The church is the camp of the saints in the beloved city. So there's going to be a final persecution. And and some of you will know that many Christians have a kind of suspicion when they hear about in the political world of kind of a global political alliance, you know, like a a one world order. And they say that seems to be hostile to the church and to the gospel. And part of the reason is because of this verse right here, that Satan is going to align all the nations, it says. It's kind of like a new Tower of Babel where the city of man is going to oppose the kingdom of God and the church. But the question that I've always had about this passage is why is Satan released at the end? So you have a thousand-year reign of Christ. Satan's bound. Why don't you just keep him bound? (laughs) Like, why is he being released? And uh, I think the reason is because this is always how God works. The pattern of the city of God in human history is always death and resurrection. You know, I wish I could take you through the whole Bible, but it's always that way with God's people. You know, Israel in the Old Testament, they were made slaves in Egypt before they got to go into the Promised Land. It's death and resurrection. Or they went into exile in Babylon before the exiles came home and there was this revival and they rebuilt Jerusalem in the temple. And, uh, and that's true of the church. It's true of the book of Revelation. And, uh, and uh, G.K. Chesterton has summarized church history this way. He says, Christendom has had a series of revolutions, and in each one of them, Christianity has died. Christianity has died many times and risen again, for it had a God who knew the way out of the grave. The faith is always converting the age, not as an old religion, but as a new religion. And what this tells us is even though we have an optimistic view of history, it's still death and resurrection, death and resurrection, death and resurrection all along. That's in our individual lives. And the history of the growth of the church will always be death and resurrection because the path to glory always has to be through the cross. The path to victory is always cruciform. And I think this pattern is what keeps the church humble and holy keeps us from a triumphalism that's, that's, that's proud or trusting in our own wisdom or our own strength. All, our culture may be in a death movement right now, but the death that's happening in our culture right now is refining the church. It is making us holy. God is pruning His church. And why does God prune His church? So that it will become more fruitful. Uh, and we should endure that pruning looking to the resurrection. And it turns out that even at the end of human history will take that same shape as one final release of Satan persecutes the church through the nations. And so here we see that Christianity is a historical religion. It it is telling the history of of human history, and the shape of history is Christ. He has bound Satan for a, a long millennia age of the church where the gospel is going forth and the, the, the nations cannot be deceived. And he has made us to reign with him that we are the leaders in the culture and so we should also suffer the way he has, looking forward to the renewal of all things. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, uh, we uh, thank you for the great hope of this passage and uh, amazing to see how your word knows that it is your providence that rules over all of history and as we find ourselves here in this cultural moment we pray that you would show us what it means to be your people to be faithful to be willing to follow our lord to the cross trusting in the power of the resurrection and we pray that um, that your kingdom would come uh here in bellingham in whatcom county in our nation, and in every nation. And so, Lord, we trust in your promises, and we go forth to serve you um, with the hope of, uh, of your kingdom. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.